Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Know Your Options, the measured risk podcast. The ultimate guide to navigating the volatile nature of the markets while managing risk purposefully. Join us as we challenge the theory behind traditional asset allocation and dive into the mathematics of investing. Whether you are a seasoned investor or just starting out, this podcast offers valuable insights and practical advice to help you make informed decisions and manage your money wisely. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's dive into the world of calculated risks together. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Larry Kriesmer. I'm with Measured Risk Portfolios, and we're the Know Your Options podcast. I've got my partner here, Bernard Sarovsky. And our guest today is Michael DeCenso of DeCenso Consulting, and he is a certified mover and shaker with soon-to-be 30,000 followers. Are you doing any kind of a special deal there, Michael, with the 30,000th follower on LinkedIn? I do a a number of things uh, with them from the standpoint of promote some of the firms that I consult, uh, as well as put out thought leadership pieces uh, to the community and make those uh, available to them and help any way I can in providing value to the industry. Yeah, well, clearly people think it's a, a, a valuable tool. So that's awesome. But Michael, you've been in this, in our sort of the RIA industry or supporting roles for how long? For over 32 years. 32 years. Goodness. Okay. So you have some cred. And what is your current role? What do you, um, what is DeCento Consulting attempting to do? Yeah, what I do is I consult large financial services companies nationwide record keepers in the 401k and 403b space, TPAs, as well as wealth managers and RAs in the retirement space. Um, I help with vision, strategy, direction, help them with procedural and substantive prudence and building the processes and standards for efficiency, as well as for compliance. I provide product development. Um, I've created 22 of the largest PEPs in the industry today, the pooled employer plans that are on the 401k retirement side of the business. They came out of the Secure Act and Secure Act 2.0. Um, I've created a number of firsts in the markets. Um, back in 96, I created the first paperless 401k with participant managed accounts. In 2000, I created one of the biggest, largest, and first DCIO outsourcings of the investment management process for 401k plans with Ibbotson. Um, with that, Morningstar bought it uh, as it became so successful. And now that is Morningstar's platform. I built one of the first HSAs in 2003. Um, I have built uh, 22 of the first PEPs in the marketplace. Uh, one of them has $5 billion in assets in it already in a year and a half. And so with this, I help RAs to grow their business, expand their business through organic means, as well as mergers and acquisitions. Um, I have performed 32 mergers and acquisitions in the business. Um, I have helped from the standpoint of hiring, firing, restructuring businesses for growth models, in adding value to the clients overall. So I won't ask about hobbies because you clearly have no other time on your hands. It's... <laughs> <laughs> well, in addition to that, I actually serve as an expert witness in the courts on large lawsuits in the financial services business. So Michael, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you get into being this in this, you know, what feels like a really powerhouse position? What got you down this road? You know, it's a constant learning mentality, quite frankly. 
Um, I started in this business with Principal Financial Group on their, uh, what they called a group and pension rep side um, as a wholesaler. Um, with that, when I went into my office in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the manager, who is a great friend of mine still today, told me, listen, I have the health and welfare side uh, all sealed up, so you're our new retirement rep. And so I was more or less pushed into the retirement business, uh, which has become my focus, which I look at this from the standpoint of the strategy of the business, the trends of the business, and try to figure out where the business is going before it gets there. Kind of go to, go to where you think the puck will be, not to where it is. Who is that? Yes. Was that Wayne Gretzky's line, I think, right? No, well, you know, it's funny. Gretzky will say that he never said that, although he gets quoted as saying it all the time. That's funny. <laughs> I wish I had something that was attributed to me that I never said. <laughs> of course, according to my wife, I've said lots of things I've never said, but that's just, I just don't remember them. <laughs> anyway, tell me, what are some of the, the key trends and developments that you're seeing out there in, in the RIA space right now? One of the biggest ones is I see a marriage between the overall financial wellness and financial well-being of individuals from the retirement side as well as the wealth management financial planning side melding together. Um, I don't think there are many firms that are doing it well, but I think it is a huge opportunity out there. And not just for the key employees and those that have a high net worth, but for the masses. Um, the masses need this type of planning as well. I mean, it's everything from you know creating a household budget, balancing a checkbook, uh, managing debt, um, do I save my HSA first or my 401k first? You know, what other things? Do I have life insurance? Do I have enough life insurance for my income and for my family's well-being down the road? Disability insurance, where the nation is absolutely uninsured for disability. If I'm a business owner, you know, do I buy sell agreements in place? Uh, what type of, of succession planning do I have in place? What are my needs for, for me and my family, um, as well as for my partners? So there's a number of things out there that I see trends that are really popping up. And not that they're all new things, but they're still things that have not been, uh, there are no solutions that have truly been enabled in the environment um, in a universal way at this point in time. So yeah. Bernard and I both came out of the insurance business as well. We were trained, uh, Bernard, you started with, what was it, Connecticut Mutual? Connecticut Mutual, yeah, way back in the day. Mine was Mass Mutual, Massachusetts Mutual, and your experience, Michael, with uh, Principal. So we might have a kindred trio here with that type of risk planning, because that was really at the root of uh, the, the core. I think the life insurance companies do a reasonable job with their agencies and their field force in getting that kind of base uh, needs met. Is that your experience too? Yeah, I mean, as you look at this, it depends on the RAAs, because a number of RAAs have fallen into, I'm just an asset manager. And so they've really focused on the asset management side and they have not become a CFP and they're not a true planner and they're not looking at the overall holistic financial planning for the individual. They're just looking at the asset management. And so I think this is a place to where value can be added to the client base, as well as to the advisors already practice from the standpoint of expanding into the life insurance, disability, annuity, as well as the AUM and the management of the assets. And so it's, it's creating that holistic view and holistic solution for each client as per their needs and creating a solution that will withstand their retirement career. 
Right. Well, it's an interesting point. You talk about, you know, trying to anticipate where the puck might be. And we have a ton of regulation in our business and compliance is always a big concern. One of the more interesting forms I thought we were required to come up with recently is this form CRS or the customer relationship summary. And your point is well taken that I think, you know, the, the SEC or our regulators are looking to try and give an end retail user a, a picture into what it's like to work with this firm. And, and they try and attempt to do this and I'm required to do it in just two pages, which is pretty challenging. But it would be interesting if you had some sort of clearly delineated service differentiator that said that would kind of in standard print um, point out to a retail advisor that this is a investment management only relationship versus a, a full-fledged planning relationship. And maybe help make that sort of the standardized disclosure and on things you can and can and cannot expect to receive from the firm. And that would also go a long way toward, you know, potentially um, driving the the fee structure that would be expected to be paid for the relationship with that firm and make it more reasonable to have, you know, higher fees for more comprehensive planning and lower fees for just investment management. I agree. And no different than the investment policy statement that's needed for a corporate retirement plan. I believe an investment policy statement is needed for the wealth management side as well um, and the financial planning. Um, from that standpoint, laying out you know, from, the, from what the needs are, what the solutions are, what the risk models are, and educating that client on how this is proceeding you know, every year and throughout the year, and quite frankly, getting their signature as well as the RA signature on such a document, I think is a very positive thing. Um, if you take a look at this, we have a society that does not have enough money for retirement, and there will be lawsuits in the future. We're already seeing it on the 401k side. We're seeing some on the wealth management side, and we believe that that will increase and into the financial planning sides of the business. And so with that, procedural and substantive prudence is our only protection. And what procedural and substantive prudence is, and this is how the courts look at it, it's, first of all, having a process, second of all, documenting the process. And if you have a documented process, the only thing worse than not having a documented process is having a documented process you're not following. So third is you have to follow that process. Fourth, you review that process. Fifth, you benchmark the process and the outcomes. Um, this is how uh, advisors, RAs, people in the industry can protect themselves and also deliver uh, better outcomes and information and education to their clients. So I think you make some. I think you make some really valid points there. It's interesting, you know, part of your approach is reminding me back in the day with the insurance world, where they would always encourage us to try and do you know three product lines with the client. You know, don't just. But you know, the upshot of that, and what I really like about your approach to this is, rather than making it just a product driven, it's it's more kind of being holistic about the approach you take to to the clients, and you know, to your point, not not just to the high net worth employers, but to the employees who are more of the rank and file. And you know, if we can make the rank and file people more financially secure it bodes very well for the future of this country. I mean, just, just good stuff. Um, Absolutely. You know, and as we yeah. look at this, you know, as you look at the, the holistic financial planning, we're looking at things, not just managing AUM, but you've got to look at the taxes. Um, you look at estate planning. Um, you look at the investment planning. Um, you look at the income needs and, and the resources for those needs. And so in this, this, this holistic solution is what is needed out there in the environment. And I don't know that we have um, the amount of experts uh, as CFPs um, delivering the holistic solutions in the manner in which need to be delivered to all the different generational aspects of the environment. 
Well, I think your specialty was in the retirement planning side of things. And I, I know that the 401k plan platforms have come a long way in being able to deliver a better, let's say, a visual into what the participants' experience might look like, both in you know, benchmarking to performance standards, benchmarking to even future income projections and uh, tying in income needs. So a lot of the platforms have, you know, become much more, I would say, retail user friendly, but it still requires you as a retail uh, 401k participant to click a button or to, you know, actively engage somehow. So are you involved in trying to bring that education side up as well to the, at, at the participant level, or do you work with RIAs to help them try and do that educational process? Great question. There's actually a firm that I consult called Remotive, where I help them to work with RIAs, TPAs, and record keepers in order to deliver a holistic financial wellness package. Um, and it does include consultants, which I think is a big part of this. Engagement is the issue in the industry. It's getting those rank and file to engage with an advisor. And a piece of that is, well, gee, I don't have that much in assets and the cost of the advisor is going to be cumbersome. So therefore, I can't afford this. It's got to get down to the affordability level. Hopefully, plan sponsors, the employers will you know, pay some portion of that, that fee. And so in that, it's, it's all about can the financial advisor, the RAA, spend the time with those individuals can they be profitable, um, not just drive revenue, but be profitable in working with those individuals? That's the big challenge with dealing with those rank and file. Um, another piece is they really need guidance. And where I think a lot of REAs in the corporate retirement plan world really focus on the 401k rather than the HSA. And in my opinion, the HSA is where people should save first and foremost before they put a dollar into their 401k. Now, my 401k firms that I know work with, you know, don't want to hear that. But the reality is with an HSA, it's triple tax positive for me as an individual. Goes in tax-free, accumulate tax-free, comes out tax-free for healthcare experiences in the future. With the 401k doing Roth or doing traditional, you know, you're going to pay taxes one way or another. Um, A lot of people say, well, the HSA doesn't have an employer match. And generally, most employers do some sort of of payment to the HSA program, generally a flat dollar amount. So there is a match. It's just not a dollar for dollar type of formula like the 401k. But people need both. And the issue we have in the US is people are not saving enough money. They literally need to save about 10 to 15% of their overall income every year for 20 to 30 years to get to what would be a comfortable retirement. So I think the area that, you know, it dawns on me too, because I've, I've got uh, children that are 30 and 29, well, I guess a little older than that now, but uh, uh, soon to be 30. And, <laughs> you know, I think it's financial literacy. We're, we're, tr- we're starting almost too late. You know, if we're going to really move the puck or move the needle, we should be sort of demanding that there is some sort of uh, high school level education of, what it takes to retire and what the objectives should be. And by the time you're 18 and are, you know, considered an adult, it's almost, uh, if we, maybe we can't ever get to a place where every child is going to graduate from high school with the expectation of going on to college, but we certainly should get to a point where every high school graduate is sort of immediately opening up an IRA or a 
oh, again, they can't necessarily have an HSA unless they have the right type of health insurance, but uh, or they work for an employer that has some sort of benefit plan like that. But that, to me, would be an interesting way of dialing back the expectation and getting it uh, something so, you know, you're as excited to get your IRA as you are your driver's license. Yes, I think it's a great point. There definitely needs to be education, I think, even in the grade schools. Um, and here's why. Um, in the high schools, I think I think what's happened is that the high school kids are not starting work as early as we did um, when we were at their age. We would go to work when we were 14, 15, 16, whether it was fast food, whether it was doing other part-time jobs, what have you, where we would see the taxes that were taken out of our paycheck. So we understood taxes very quickly, where I think today the kids are not going to work literally until they're in college or after college for the first jobs. And they're not experiencing those things. And it is a rude awakening for them once they get there. That I think this needs to start very early, especially from, again, the budgeting and the debt management side, because I'm seeing more and more that teenagers, even before they're in college and those that are in college, receive a credit card from their parents and they use that credit card for their expenses on a daily basis, weekly, monthly basis. They don't know how to manage it because they never see or go through the bill um, or the statement at the end of the month. The parents don't sit down with them and go through it. The parents just pay it. Um, Things have evolved in our society in a way in which I don't necessarily want to call it entitlement, but it's where we have done an injustice to the younger generations as far as educating them in any way, um, not just from the standpoint of financial literacy and financial wellness, but just everyday living. I think you make a great point. I mean, and I completely agree with the whole idea that education needs to start as early as possible on the on the financial side. You know, I have a kid who's, you know, one is graduated college, one is about to, and um, another one is about to go into college. And I marvel at how little these kids know about finan- just basic financial concepts, you know, dollar cost averaging, you know, just portfolio construction, just, just you know, relatively mundane things in our industry. And there is no knowledge of this is given. They, they don't even know the difference between a stock and a bond. I mean, it's it's incredible to me how uninformed many of them are. And then, you know, they get their first job and they're told to put money in the 401k and, you know, they're not even sure what to do with it. And they'll just do the minimum because, oh, I just want to get the match or whatever it might be. Uh, I feel strongly if, and I completely concur with, with both of you that, you know, there needs to be more resources put at making our kids more financially literate. Because I think long term, you know, when you look at you know, right now we've got this whole debt ceiling crisis going on. And, you know, obviously it'll get resolved, but the, the whole concept is, you know, as, as a country, we set a terrible example to the generations coming up about, like, we, we can't even set a debt ceiling limit, <laughs> you know. Uh, so how do we expect our, our kids who are coming in our in our shadows to, to be able to manage their own financial affairs when we do such a poor job of giving them any level of financial literacy whatsoever? It's, it's shocking to me. I, I don't know what the fix is, you know, uh, I know we've had some clients over the years who've tried to get into schools to bring in financial literacy programs, but there, there seems to be a fair amount of resistance. So uh, have, you, have you had any kind of insights into this, Michael, or is it something that's not really, you know, as much as we'd like to see it, how do we make it happen? Well, we've seen some states pass some laws and some rules where there's going to be some sort of financial literacy in the high school system. I believe it needs to start even before that, especially things like balancing a checkbook and debt management. And the reason I bring up debt management is we see all of these um, kids out there, you know, there's 1.7 trillion of student loan debt and growing, where yeah. because they got this loan and they went to a certain college, um, the colleges are very different now. Colleges and universities are very different now with the the ambiance of the college and university than when we were in college. And when we were in college, we lived in a dorm room that was cinder block, 
two people to a 600 square foot room, maybe um, with two desks built into the wall. And we would put our beds up on milk crates. So we had enough room to put in a couch or somewhere to sit. What has changed is everybody has their own room, their own private shower. And then there's a common room um, that breaks off into separate rooms. Um, it, the cafeterias are now um, not a cafeteria, but they're fast food palaces. Um, this yeah. has all changed and evolved. There's a different expense for this. Um, the professors uh, have, have run up the costs. And so what's happened is they're running up these bills for their education, but now expecting somebody else to pay that off for them, which is a terrible lesson, which yeah. is I can run up as much debt as I want and somebody's going to bail me out. This is not a positive thing for our country. It's not a positive thing for teaching financial literacy to the younger generations. Um, so this is something that that I really don't like that is being discussed about paying off student loans that people ran up on their own and made their own choices. And whether they were good choices or bad choices, they're now looking for somebody to take care of that for them. Yeah, um, That is a terrible lesson to put on society. Well, it's uh, a terrible example. I mean, it just says, you know, next time you run up debt, somebody will come bail you out. It's just... Uh... Yeah, exactly. and if you think about disclosure, you know, the SEC and what we have to do in our industry, imagine if the colleges actually had to disclose to their you know, new enrollees or the candidates before they accept you know, uh, the school they're going to, what the average uh, financial loan burden is, let's say one year, five year, and 10 years post-graduation. But even more importantly, uh, share that in the different types of degrees, because there's a whole different animal for, let's say, an engineering degree versus an English writing degree. And you can get the same from the same university for about the same cost. And one has a substantially better chance of being able to pay off that debt than the other. And none of that is really disclosed to the in, inbound student. Absolutely correct. And you know, another thing with this is you could go to junior college for two years to get the requirements out of the way. But one thing that's occurred too is the colleges and universities have changed the model. Um, you have to know day one when you go in what you want to do. Um, generally, at 18 years old, you don't know. Um, so that's somewhat of an injustice to the individuals that are going to colleges and universities. Um, but yeah. from there, it's taking the average individual 5.4 years to get a four-year degree. So part of that is on the individuals and in that they're not taking the 12 to 16-hour semesters like we used to do. Um, they're taking a lower load of classes um, because they are enjoying the social aspects as well. Um, and I'm not saying this is everybody, but this is a portion of the society that is in the college and university system. And it's taken 5.4 years to get that four-year degree, which the colleges are making more money and the students are running up more debt in order to do that. Well, let's let's circle back to Desenso Consulting. And what type of IRA or RIA are you looking for? I mean, is there a ideal client? Are you are you still taking clients or what is, what is it you're doing in your firm? Yes, I'm still taking clients. And what I do is I will act as an outsourced or fractional COO, um, a chief growth or revenue officer. Um, I will help from the standpoint of creating the procedural and substantive prudence, the process to create efficiency for the RA firm, as well as a better uh, client experience for their clients. I will help them with vision, strategy, direction, focus, product development, um, a number of different areas to help them grow their firms as well as I'm active um, in hiring and, and terminating employees that go into the cultural aspects of that firm, um, as well as mergers and acquisitions. If you're, I mean, again, this is sort of like the rank and file uh, employee participant in a 401k versus maybe the management team. 
is there a size at which you really can't deliver this service? I mean, if you have a brand new advisor who's got a small state registered firm with 23 clients and two and a half million dollars of AUM, is that even feasible or do you need to be a certain size to make it sense for you? No, there's ways in which I can consult them and help them. Um, what I like to do is it truly help as many people as I can. So from that standpoint, um, I do have employees that work with me. And so there's ways in which I can uh, create a package that can work for them. All right. What about the industry? You know, there's quite a trend here with the RIA roll up where there are just aggregators yes. that appear to be going out and gobbling up, you know, good sized firms to become bigger sized firms. And um, what are your thoughts on those? Are those good candidates for your services or are they uh, a good thing for the industry or bad or unknown yet? Well, let's talk about that because I have a lot of experience there um, and that I've done 32 mergers and acquisitions in, in the business. What I'm seeing is a, a trend um, of where people that want to do either a roll-up or want to be acquired, they love to talk about what the multiple is up front and how much money they're going to get. They don't talk about the back end. And the back end is going to create a new trend uh, that we're going to see from most firms that were acquired in the last three to five years. Those that are paid on AUM, they did not meet their earnouts the last couple of years because the market's down. And when you don't meet your earnout, there really isn't incentive for you to stay with that firm that acquired you or rolled you up, um, especially if you haven't been integrated. And so the real issue here is the firms that are doing the mergers, acquisitions, and roll-ups really need to create best practice standards and integrate those mergers, acquisitions, roll-ups into those best practice standards. Without that integration, those firms that were rolled up or acquired will leave and they will take their clients with them. Whether it's a non-compete, confidentiality agreement doesn't matter because the courts have always decided that the client chooses who they want to work with. And so the client says, I want to follow my advisor. And quite frankly, the client only knows that advisor because they were never integrated. They may have seen that roll-up firm's name or that acquiring firm's name in small print, maybe. Or when the acquisition was first done with an explanation of, hey, we're going to this firm and here's why. But they've never been integrated into a service model standards or those individuals um, in that home office or regional offices with that roll-up or acquiring firm. And so I think we're going to see a trend of rollouts. So I guess the warning signal would be that the roll-up attempts where you sort of have this mothership in the central central area, but allow the operation of uh, DBAs and sort of continue on is kind of somewhat, you, you think, perilous, ultimately? I think the whole key to this is, if I'm going to be a roll-up firm or an acquiring firm, I have to have a set of practice standards that are best in business practice standards as we see it in our firm. And I need to acquire firms that fit into that culture, practice, and standards. I think a lot of the acquisitions over the last three to five years have been done for revenue growth rather than business fit, philosophical fit, and cultural fit. Mm -hmm. I think those are three major points of acquisition and why you want to do an acquisition just doing it revenue for revenue sake is not a winning game. Revenue for revenue sake is one plus one equals one and a half. Doing it for business fit, philosophical fit, and cultural fit is one plus one equals three. Yeah, that's a great point. Michael, I just wanted to come back a little bit. You mentioned something about the, you help clients with that product development. What are some of the more interesting product development or products you've seen in the last couple of years that, that you think are worthy of mention? Yeah, probably the biggest one right now is the PEPs, the pooled employer plans. This is banning unrelated employers together under one 401k plan or 403b plan. 
So these are unrelated industries, unrelated employers of all sizes that come together under one plan, 15500. They still have their own testing because they do have variations and flexibility in some plan design um, and generally come under a 316 operational fiduciary in the, the PEP, a 338 investment management fiduciary, a PPP, which is the pooled plan provider, which is a fiduciary. And so what this does is it releases and relieves the employer of running a plan, especially in what I think are some difficult financial times coming up to where these employers can focus on running their business and growing their revenues and profits. Their HR team can focus on back to work issues and other HR issues, and none of them have to worry about running a 401k plan. It is a total outsourcing of the 401k plan for not only the day-to-day decisions, um, the sign-off, the review, um, but also, also fiduciary liabilities and responsibilities. Now, now, we'd imagine that there's quite a reduction in cost in doing that because you're pooling all those assets and you can get a much better fee structure, I would imagine. You can from the efficiency to scale, and, and that can be a benefit, uh, but it's really about I want to offload all this work, all the review, all the sign-off, and as much of the fiduciary responsibilities and liabilities that I can. Mm-hmm. And again, is that a five employee and $500,000 kind of thing, or can it be brought down to you know, a smaller number? Or is there a size at which this starts to make sense? Great question. These were put in place by the Department of Labor um, under the SECURE Act from the standpoint, um, actually by Congress and then the Department of Labor and the IRS, but to actually do this for startup plans. Um, that along with the tax credits that came out of SECURE Act 2.0, they have offered employers of small sizes as well as large sizes to put a plan in place. So a startup plan can fit into a PEP, a $300 million plan can fit into a PEP. Into a PEP. So there is not any sort of, of size that really matters here. I will say this, in the PEPs that I have built, about 85% of the employers are existing plans that have gone into the PEPs because they're the ones that truly understand the fiduciary law offloading. They understand all the work and time it takes for them to run the plan, their HR department to run the plan. So they have an appreciation for that. With a startup plan, doesn't have that appreciation because they've never done it, but it will be more cost efficient and more valuable for that startup plan because they will get greater benefits in joining a PEP. And so you've been in integral in informing the PPPs that are the platforms, and do you also uh, review and or suggest the 338 fiduciaries? Or what, what roles do you fill there? Great question. What I do is I consult on the structure, the focus, the vision, and the strategy of building the PEP. I've done it for record keepers in the past, for TPAs, as well as RAAs. Um, when I build one for an RAA, they are the 338. Um, so I've built UBS's national PEP. Um, I've built Lockton's national PEP. Um, these are things that I've done to help these firms to grow their business um, through the product development. Yeah, that's those are obviously enormous RIAs. But if we're talking about maybe uh, you know a six partner firm with a billion dollars, is that still manageable if they've got a good chunk of pension or retirement business? Absolutely. If they have if they have ten plans plus, uh, there's different ways to do it. They could either do their own private label PEP, or they could join some of the PEPs that are already out there. I see. Okay. Well, we're getting up to about our half an hour spot here, and I thought I would. Uh, See if we can't maybe just, what's the best way to reach you, Michael? So if there is someone out there who's just like, oh my God, this is the guy I need to speak with. Uh, what's the best way to find you? Well, one is my phone number, which is 609-658-3331. 
You can connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, where I do have 37,000 people that follow me on LinkedIn. Um, you can also email me at mjdicenso at gmail.com. Excellent. Excellent. You can also obviously reach out to Measure Risk Portfolios and we'll have Michael's content information as well. And we typically we just finish with one question. You know, if there's anything you think we should have asked you, is there a question or something that we didn't cover? Or is there something you just wanted to share before we wrap up? How much time do we have? Uh, there's, there's so much going on. This, there's so much going on with this business right now and the economic environment, as well as I don't know if, if people are aware of this, but we are getting ready to send about 20,000 troops over to Africa. China and Russia are already there. Al-Qaeda is there. And the continent of Africa uh, and every country within it um, is running into a, an issue from the standpoint of, of internal conflict and now external conflict coming into play. But we are deploying 20,000 troops over there within the next month. My son is one of them. Um, and so as we look at a couple of things here, we look at inflation. We look at, at the economic environment with layoffs. We look at the U.S. dollar, where the BRIC countries, as well as all oil-producing companies uh, and countries, are moving to the yuan and off of the U.S. dollar. And we look at potential corporate real estate pressures, individual housing and homeowner, homeowner pressures. We look at credit card usage being the highest it's been month by month over the last four months in history. We look at our government debt and the debt to GDP ratio. It's about 60, 160% right now of debt to GDP. We look at a debt ceiling. There are a number of challenges out there and individuals really need our help consulting and advice to navigate all these challenges and markets that we are, are moving forward into. Fair enough. Well, that's an excellent question to wrap up on a response. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with us today, Michael, and uh, wish you well. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the show. This interview also may contain statements that constitute endorsements of measured risk portfolios, also known as MRP. Please note that any such statements are not made by clients of MRP, but by representatives of other investment advisory firms that work with MRP. No compensation was offered or given in exchange for these statements. However, a conflict of interest exists due to the incentive to give an endorsement in the interest of a good future working relationship between the endorser and MRP. <laughs>